Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the continuing paralysis of the legislative branch as nine Republican men, only two of whom accept the fact that Joe Biden won the presidency, offer themselves up as candidates to be the next speaker. Joining us is E.J. Dion, a columnist for the Washington Post, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a visiting professor at Harvard University, and a professor at Georgetown University. He is the author of Why the Right Went Wrong and co-author of the New York Times bestseller One Nation After Trump and Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. His latest book, co-authored with Miles Rappaport, is 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting, and we'll discuss his latest article at the Washington Post, The GOP's Speaker Chaos is a Blessing in Disguise. Then, with two more hostages released today as the Israeli bombardment of Gaza intensifies, we'll examine the need to reconsider our position in the Middle East instead of doubling down on failed policies and speak with John Hoffman, a policy analyst in defense and foreign policy at the Cato Institute and a professor at George Mason University specializing in Middle East geopolitics and political Islam. He was recently awarded the 40 Under 40 Award from the Middle East Policy Council for his work on U.S. foreign policy in the region, and his work has been featured in the Middle East Policy, Open Democracy, The Cipher Brief, and Foreign Policy Magazine, and we'll discuss his article at the National Interest, Time to Change Course in the Middle East. Then finally we'll go to Argentina, where a potty-mouthed populist came in second in Sunday's election and speak with David Adler, General Council, General Coordinator of the Progressive International, who previously served as foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders in his campaign for the U.S. presidency, policy policy director for the Democracy in Europe Movement 2025, and the co-founder of its Green New Deal Europe campaign. He is currently part of an international delegation from the Progressive International to Buenos Aires to accompany the electoral process and to strengthen ties with trade unions, social movements and parliamentary representatives on the front lines of Argentine democracy. And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings, and armed and angry followers are paralyzing our legislative branch and threatening to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judicial branch. We are in a fight between crazy America and normal America, which we have to win. Please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is E.J. Dion, who is a columnist for The Washington Post, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and a visiting professor at Harvard University, and a professor at Georgetown University. He's the author of Why the Right Went Wrong, and co-author of the New York Times bestseller, One Nation After Trump, and Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. His latest book, co-authored with Miles Rappaport, is 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. And his latest article, The Washington Post, is The GOP Speaker Chaos is a Blessing in Disguise. Welcome to Background Briefing, E.J. Dion. It, it's so lovely to be with you. Thanks. Well, thanks for joining us, E.J., and I welcome your optimism because I am alarmed at the fact that Donald Trump 
has essentially paralyzed the legislative branch through his toady, Jim Jordan, and he could recapture the executive branch in 2024, and he's already, in effect, captured the judicial branch. So I'm on the alarmed side. Where do you come down? Well, I'm pretty alarmed, too, and I don't want to uh, pretend to be fake optimistic, uh, but I do think that there is the classic principle of all the old 12-step programs, first admit you have a problem. And I think the silver lining of this fight in the House is that it's really brought home in a particularly dramatic way how uh, not only Trumpism, but the rise of the radical right inside the Republican Party. It's not just producing crazy politics. It's not just producing policies that many of us find alarming. It's threatening the entire structure of our democratic government and our ability to govern ourselves. And the repeated thrashing about of Republicans to find a speaker, the divisions that you're seeing in that party are just making clear to everyone. And I think for the first time, perhaps, I don't know, uh, for the first time, some Republicans are willing to say outright, yes, this is not sustainable. We cannot um, you know, hope to help govern the country if we continue to behave like this. So I think this crisis is calling forth a realization that's really important. And it's also calling forth, you know, a, a, you know, the chances of this happening are still small. But the notion that it might take a coalition to run the House of Representatives because so many right wing Republicans are simply not willing to do the basic things to keep government running. I think that the fact that we are having this conversation at the national level, we've had it at the state level. There are coalition state legislatures. But for the first time, people are talking seriously about uh, how Democrats might have to cooperate with Republicans um, and Republicans might have to cooperate with Democrats because there's no other way to get the House functioning. And we're going to learn that in the next week. If none of these nine Republicans uh, can manage to get himself, and I think they are all hims, get himself uh, elected speaker, um, that's going to be the only option to get the House going again. And I've talked to fairly conservative Republicans who seem to acknowledge that this may actually require thinking very differently uh, than even than they have been willing to think in the past. We'll see. But E.J. Dion, do you think that the Democrats are, are sufficiently pointing out the role of Donald Trump? I mean, if you go back to the 2015, it was, after all, Jeb Bush who called him the chaos candidate. And, mm-hmm. and, and about the same time, Mitt Romney made a powerful speech about what a fraud and a disaster this guy is. And uh, somehow... They've never been able to stop this man, and the more they impeach him or try him or have indictments of him, the more he seems to get support within his base. So this is the part that I don't understand, is at least point out the role of the chaos candidate, because the only person that I can tell who's, who's really profiting from the chaos that Trump is generating is Vladimir Putin. Right. Well, there are two people benefiting. One is Donald Trump and the other is indeed Vladimir Putin. I agree with that uh, entirely. Um, 
I think that, first of all, I think Democrats have done everything they can and will keep doing to try to point out Trump's role in this. You're hearing that certainly from the Democratic leadership in Congress. Uh, Lord knows there there was hardly a more thorough um, congressional investigation packaged more cleverly and clearly than the January 6th investigation that really laid out what happened. And I think uh, was the predicate for all of these indictments or uh, not the one on documents, but the other indictments uh, that we are uh, seeing of Trump. So I think that the <laughs> Democrats are going to keep doing what the Democrats are doing. I think we can't assume that Trump's uh, position is going to be as strong as it appears to be now indefinitely. I see a couple of things happening. First, it's very interesting on the Republican side. Ron DeSantis was trying to run a Trump light campaign, and that is clearly imploding. He has now had he's been forced, I think, too late to save himself to go after Trump more aggressively. And Nikki Haley is emerging as the anti-Trump candidate. I think you might see some interesting consolidation in the Republican race where Trump will not have as free a ride through the primaries as it looks now. I think some of that does depend on whether Haley um, uh, can consolidate. And Lord knows she's not my politics. She has a lot to answer for. After all, she worked for Trump. But I think seeing a coherent campaign against Trump, which you haven't seen from DeSantis will have an effect. And there is polling that shows that even among Republicans, there's one poll that says that uh, 45% of Republicans uh, couldn't vote for Trump if he were convicted of any of the, of any of the felonies uh, that he is accused of. So I don't think this is all played out uh, yet. It's, there's no question that there is a solid Trump base in the Republican Party that no matter how often he's indicted, no matter what he's charged with, they're going to stick with him. Um, but, you know, if you look at American history, there have always been figures who, no matter how much trouble uh, they got in into, uh, the, their people stuck with them. You saw this a lot at the local level. In my home state of Massachusetts, James Michael Curley, uh, the legendary uh, leader of uh, you know, working class Irish Catholics in Boston, got elected from a jail cell because people looked at his persecution as an attack on them. And Trump has managed to persuade this base of his that every attack on him is an attack on them. I don't know how a millionaire, multi, multi, multi well, we think he's a multimillionaire who inherited all his money can become this paladin of a certain part of the working class, but that's what he's become. And it's also the right wing middle class and upper class. Um, but I'm, I don't think this is necessarily permanent. I, I see some shakiness here. And I see the, the other thing that happened in this House race that is very heartening is that 25 Republicans on the third ballot had the guts to say, Jim Jordan, no way he cannot be Speaker of the House of Representatives. And because of the public courage of these 25 um, roughly, I guess it was 125 on a secret ballot or 128, somewhere in there, said, yes, Jordan has to step aside. Now, I think that gap between the 25 public ones and the 120 plus who are willing to say it privately is the problem in the Republican Party. You need more to join those 25 in saying, uh, starting to talk about what's unacceptable. But in, the, in terms of the nine obscure Republican men, who are stepping into the <laughs> into this void to become the next speaker? Only two of them 
except the fact that Joe Biden won the last election. So that doesn't bode well, does it? Uh, it doesn't. And what, what's intriguing is Tom Emmer, um, the number three in the House, effectively, who is seen as the most serious candidate, is one of those who voted to sort of buy Biden's victory. And he is now having to go back and somehow reassure the Trump people. And he's I, I uh, saw just before we connected that he's apparently going to have some conversation with Trump. What you worry about with Emmer is he's going to have to make the same deal that Kevin McCarthy made with these folks. And we saw how unstable uh, that was. So, yes, it is very, very disturbing that um, such a large chunk of the Republican Party either insists the election was stolen or refuses to say that Joe Biden won fair and square. So, yeah, there's what I'm saying is not that there isn't a serious ongoing threat to democracy. I think there is. Um, but I don't think I, I think that this fight in the House is bringing home some of these problems in a way they haven't been brought home before. And I think there are more people in the Republican Party willing to face up to the fact that we cannot govern ourselves as a democracy if things um, stay like this. But you're quite right to worry about the ongoing power of Donald Trump. I am. I worry about it, too. But E.J. Dion, this is an example, is it not? of counter-majoritarianism, which is really plaguing our politics at the deepest levels. If you go back to the recent elections, I think more presidents have been elected lately uh, with less in the popular vote uh, than those that won the popular vote. And you've got the counter-majoritarian nature of the Supreme Court and the fact that, you know, as we know, the, the senator from Wyoming represents just one congressional district. And that person has equal weight for a senator from California representing 40 million people. So the idea that eight right-wing radicals in the House could paralyze the legislative branch is extraordinary. That, I mean, that's the ultimate in counter-majoritarianism, isn't it? Oh, exactly. And I, and I think that's, that's why the position that uh, Hakeem Jeffries, the House Democratic leader, um, is taking is so interesting because... Uh, this isn't bipartisanship for bipartisanship's sake. He's not pretending that there's broad ground for agreement on all kinds of issues between the Democrats and the Republicans. He is simply insisting that majorities in the House should be able to work their will. And that on, say, two recent votes, one for to avert um, a uh, debt crisis uh, back in May and again to uh, avert a government shutdown recently, um, the Republicans couldn't do it on their own. More Democrats voted for those deals to uh, avoid catastrophe than Republicans did. But when you put them together, it was a vast majority. Structurally, you're quite right. We are we, we managed to get through some of these counter majoritarian aspects of our governing structure without having to confront their difficulties. The winner of the popular vote won the Electoral College um, and the partisanship um, the party polarization state by state wasn't as sharp. Now you have a Republican Party that to gain political power actually depends on anti-majoritarianism uh, because they Republicans tend to not all of the, not all of the states, but the smaller states tend to be Republican. And we've seen, as you said, twice since 2000, um, a Republican take the White House, even though um, he lost the popular vote. Only one Republican since 2000 has won uh, the popular vote. And yet we had the Bush 
uh, first Bush administration and the Trump administration. So you've got political problems piled on to constitutional uh, challenges that we already had. And on top of that, you've got the outrageous gerrymanders uh, in some of these states where districts are drawn in such a way that a vote of, uh, say, 43, 44, 45 percent of the electorate can give Republicans an overwhelming majority of congressional delegations and state legislatures. So, yes, the challenge to democracy is at the mega level where you're seeing um, sort of Donald Trump and those who support him make very authoritarian noises, embrace the likes of Viktor Orban. But then you're seeing these attacks at a structural level at various uh, in various parts of our country and in uh, various states um, that are trying to enshrine anti-majoritarianism. So um, this is an enormous challenge. And I think it should be the next election really has to be fought around the issue of democracy and that democracy means majority rule within constitutional constraints, not minority rule um, using uh, constitutional imperfections to allow a a minority to work its will. But in the last couple of minutes, C.J. Dion, don't the Republicans have to get rid of the Hastert rule, which means you simply cannot cooperate with the Democrats, which is, again, it falls into the anti-majoritarian mechanism named after a disgraced former speaker who was eventually jailed, I think, for child sex abuse. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that Jim Jordan has a cloud over him from 177 young men in the Ohio State wrestling community who were sexually abused by the team doctor who Jim Jordan apparently knew about his activities and did nothing. So I may be digressing a little bit, but uh, I think who these people are is just as important as as what they do politically. No, I I agree with that. And Hasford was disgraced in these questions about Jordan have never been satisfactorily uh, resolved. Uh, but they have they have often sort of uh, uh, winked at the Hastert rule. These two deals that have that kept us out of trouble so far this year on the debt and on the shutdown ignored the Hastert rule. Um, you had a majority of Republicans voting with the Democrats, but a huge uh, Republican minority voting against them. I think what's exciting and interesting now is that. Um, the rule has always been at the at the House level that um, you didn't govern the House by coalition. It's been a long time since you even thought about governing the House uh, through a coalition. I think the conversations about that now are underscoring how um, uh, radical or adventurous or firm we're going to have to be in fighting uh, for, for majority rule. And again, I'm not saying that a coalition house is just around the corner. It's going to be very hard to bring about. But the fact that we're there, I think, sort of, I think, shows us how much recognition there is of the majority rule problem. Um, And I think anything that reminds us of that problem is good, which is why, A, I appreciate your show, but B, why I think this fight in the House is ultimately useful because it's bringing home the problem that you've been describing here. And just in closing, uh, government shutdown is just around the corner. Correct. And um, the you, you know what you've seen is a sufficient majority of Republicans so far 
uh, in the House, and it seems an overwhelming uh, number in the Senate, have said a shutdown is no good politically for them, let alone not good uh, for uh, the country. The worrisome thing about uh, if Jim Jordan had been elected, and it is still troubling that 200 Republicans on one ballot actually voted for Jim Jim Jordan. Had he been speaker, it was almost a vote for a shutdown. Uh, fortunately, uh, that vote failed. And um, I still think that enough Republicans are going to say it's really not in our interest to go down this road. And I sure hope I'm right about that. Well, E.J. Dion, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, it's always good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you, E.J. And again, I've been speaking with E.J. Dion, who is a columnist for The Washington Post, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a visiting professor at Harvard University and a professor at Georgetown University. And he's the author of Why the Right Went Wrong and co-author of the New York Times bestseller, One Nation After Trump and Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. His latest book, co-authored with Miles Rappaport, is 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. And his latest article at the Washington Post is The GOP's Speaker Chaos is a Blessing in Disguise. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the need to reconsider our position in the Middle East instead of doubling down on failed policies. Outside the passion millions Put them into power Expect a little more back for their taxes Like school books, beds in hospitals And peace in our bloody time All they get is old men grinding axes Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, John Hoffman, a policy analyst in defense and foreign policy at the Cato Institute and a professor at George Mason University, specializing in Middle East geopolitics and political Islam. He was recently awarded the 40 Under 40 Award from the Middle East Policy Council for his work on U.S. foreign policy in the region, and his work has been featured in Middle East Policy, Open Democracy, The Cipher Brief, and Foreign Policy Magazine, and he has an article at the National Interest, Time to Change Course in the Middle East. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Hoffman. Thank you for having me on, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, John, and uh, we're hardly changing course in the Middle East, and once again... We're at the mercy of all kinds of players. I mean, if you look at the history of how the U.S. has been dragged into uh, Middle East wars and tortured politics going back, for example, the reason in large part we ended up with President Nixon was because Bobby Kennedy was assassinated by a Palestinian angry about arms sales to Israel. And then you've go, and then, of course, it was the Ayatollah Khomeini making a deal with the Republicans that brought Ronald Reagan to the White House at Jimmy Carter's expense. And then you had Saddam Hussein basically bolstering George W. Bush as a kind of all-purpose bad guy who helped re-elect Bush in 2004. And I could go on in terms of how it affects our politics, how we get whipsawed by these obscure players. And now it's the latest of these murderous group of Hamas psychos who attacked Israel. And now we've got aircraft carriers and the possibility of a broader war. So what is it about the Middle East that keeps sucking America back in? 
Yeah, you know, and uh, here we go one more time into the breach. I mean, this is uh, this is really concerning, you know, both from a escalation point of view and from a, a policy point of view. The Biden administration just refusing to adjust course from these decades of, of failed policies. And like you said, you know, two aircraft carriers now. I think four thousand troops are being sent uh, in addition to those uh, two aircraft carriers. There have been attacks on uh, U.S. forces throughout the Middle East. You, have, you know, our our small band of forces in in Iraq and Syria. You know, this this has the real potential of escalating into a region wide conflict with absolutely catastrophic consequences. But yet again, Washington has really failed to recognize the limitations of its own policies in the region has failed to recognize the limited strategic importance of the Middle East. And what we see is just decades and decades of policies rooted in continuity and not change, the enriching of special interests and the furthering of a narrow interest of a political elite intent on preserving this idea of American hegemony. But it was only recently that uh, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan touted the Biden administration's accomplishments in the region, <laughs> yeah. as you write in the national interest, uh, John, quoting uh, Jake Sullivan, the Middle East region is quieter today than it has been in two decades. Well, that's blown up in their face. In fact, Biden admitted that he thought that Hamas attacked Israel in order, probably on Iran's orders, in order to derail the so-called Abraham's Accords, detente between Israel and Saudi Arabia, which the U.S. is in, deeply invested in for some reason, which escapes me. Why are we so <laughs> invested in the Abraham Accords, which blew yeah, up so in our face? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, to your first point, yeah, that's it's unfortunate that <laughs> just days before this happened, Sullivan is on the record saying it's quieter than it's ever been in decades. Uh, but n not just myself, but you know, I've seen many other pieces using that quote, and it's uh, <laughs> it's unfortunate for Sullivan. But at the end of the day, it just it marks the dramatic disconnect between Washington and the reality on the ground, and nothing embodies that disconnect more than the Abraham Accords. You know, the, the Abraham Accords were, you know, uh, ushered in under the Trump administration, this was, you know, marketed as the branch, brainchild of uh, uh, Jared Kushner and the dawn of a new Middle East. But really, in actuality, what the Abraham Accords represent are a political mechanism to maintain the status quo in the region. From the American perspective, the United States hoped it could create a more formal coalition to keep the status quo in the region as it pivots away and gets sucked into places like Eastern Europe and, and the Asia Pacific. But from the regional perspective, they perceived it as the absolute opposite. They perceived it as a way to keep the United States deeply engaged in the region as a guarantor of their security. And that's what Saudi Arabia has been pushing very hard for. They've openly acknowledged. Uh, there's a really good quote from the Wall Street Journal that I have in the National Interest article. They openly acknowledge that they hope to manipulate the return of great power politics and fear of China to keep the United States deeply in the uh, deeply in the region and, and to get them to uh, offer concessions. And in, in the wake of the war, 
Biden continues to push this deal. You know, there was just a bipartisan delegation of 10 senators that went to Saudi Arabia to try to keep this thing alive. You know, it just speaks to a failure to understand what actually constitutes stability in the Middle East. Right. But the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, shortly after the, this latest war erupted, went to Saudi Arabia to meet with Mohammed bin Salman and MBS kept him waiting for hours and then eventually cancelled mm -hmm. the meeting. So much for our bending over backwards to accommodate this murderous little punk. You know, he, by the way, as you point out in your article, in private, MBS says that he expects that by playing major powers against each other, Saudi Arabia will eventually pressure Washington to concede to its demands for better access to U.S. weapons and nuclear technology. So that's the game that he's playing. The Mouse That Roared. I don't even remember that movie. It was made years ago, but it was. it's about how a small power can play off the big powers against each other and benefit. Yeah, no, yeah, this is absolutely a case of the tail wagging the dog here. You know, this, it's, it's, it's very unfortunate that Washington has yet to wake up to this reality of how, you know, they're manipulating the return of great power politics and how they're you know, pushing for these massive, unprecedented concessions, whether it be cooperation with their civilian nuclear program or the uh, security guarantee. But to me, what is just absolutely, you know, just a terrible miscalculation on the Biden administration's part is to think that somehow and, and you know, Biden said, you know, uh, that he believes that Hamas launched this attack to derail Saudi-Israel normalization that's been echoed by some senators and, you know, this, it's, been, it's been echoed by others in the administration. But this continued push for a Saudi-Israel deal, thinking that this will somehow de-escalate tensions in the Middle East or somehow lead to peace between Israel and Palestine, this, this is... It's just absolutely uh, absurd. Well, Netanyahu recently went to the UN and presented uh, and touted the Abraham Accords and presented a map that basically had Palestine disappear and become yeah, exactly. part of great, it, it greater even, Israel. Yeah, it wasn't even recognized on the map. And, you know, Israel has viewed the Accords as a way to align the region states against Iran and preserve the overall status quo while sidestepping the Palestinian question altogether. And nothing epitomized that more than, like you just said, the map of the quote-unquote new Middle East that he presented at the UN. Right, but now the Palestinian cause is back in the global consciousness. As Israel pounds Gaza and they send their troops in in a ground war, it's just going to get uglier and uglier and uh, more and more pressure on Israel to stop, including from the U.S. And then, as I say, people are now thinking about, well, they're learning a little bit more about the history of the oppression of the Palestinians. You know, 75 years of a pretend peace process that was never about peace, but was about a process. And meanwhile, the settlers keep gobbling more of the West Bank, and that's Netanyahu's project. And, you know, uh, what's really interesting, you know, and 
is the the outpouring of international support. You know, we've seen protests all across the world, you know, in support of the Palestinians. And it just it, it signals, again, the the hollowness of the Abraham Accords, the hollowness of these normalization deals. And in terms of, you know, from the Israeli perspective, there's been a lot of reports recently that, you know, it's not really clear that the Israelis have a concrete strategy of what they're actually doing. You know, what how you know, they claim that they want to eradicate Hamas. They claim that they want to uh, make it so they can never launch uh, an attack like this again. Great. That is absolutely, you know, a strategy that it's or, or a, a plan that is good. But how are you going to do this? How you know, what does a post Hamas Gaza Strip look like, you know, and, and, you know, before we even get to the question of a ground invasion, you know, what is the actual strategy beyond just throwing bombs at Gaza? Well, the strategy is to eliminate Hamas, to kill all of them, uh, and then to hand over the territory to the UN and, and any Arab state that's got the money, like Qatar, to rebuild the place. And that's, that is their strategy, from what I've learned from Israeli military strategists, etc. And they've stated this as much. So the question is, is, <laughs> is that going to work? But I don't think you can discount what Iran is up to. There's no question that Iran is behind this because Iran was the one that was a th was threatened by the Abraham Accords, right? So I Iran was threatened by the Abraham Accords, and there have been a lot of reports that, you know, I think it was the Wall Street Journal who was the first organization that broke that Iran, you know, encouraged the attack or, or was behind the plotting of the attack. But U.S. and Israeli officials did come out and you know, try to pump the brakes on that pretty hard, you know, saying that they don't have intelligence to prove that yet. But of course, Iran has been supporting Hamas for years. You know, there's, you know, uh, there's absolutely, you know, Iran's hand is in this in, you know, the the more indirect way, you know, as, as it supported Hamas for a long time. But my concern is that this narrative of Iran is now going to serve as a springboard for the United States to get involved militarily. We saw Mitch McConnell the other night. Uh, he described a new he referred to it as a new axis of evil, uh, uh, referring to Russia, China and Iran. So, you know, there's there's a lot of animosity and, and anger right now built up in Washington towards Iran. And, you know, this could especially if Hezbollah gets involved in the war and especially if, you know, some of Iran's other proxies continue to escalate or if, you know, Iran does something directly, this could really morph into a catastrophic situation. Well, Iran is already through their proxies on three of Israel's borders, Gaza, Syria and Lebanon. Hezbollah in Lebanon and the Quds forces and IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard Corps in Syria and Hamas in Gaza. And I think the reason that the U.S. didn't want to blame Iran right right out of the gate is that they don't want a regional war, even even with their aircraft carriers. But they may get a regional war because I think Iran is in, is in the catbird seat here. 
see, I don't see that no, I, Israel or the United States want to have a full, all-out war with Iran. So Iran can just cause havoc via its proxies. They've already, if assuming that they're behind the Gaza attack, look what they've achieved so far. And then on top of that, they can pull the trigger on Hezbollah in Lebanon at any moment. And they're already, their proxies in Iraq are already sending drones and rockets into U.S. bases uh, in both in Iraq and Syria. I think they're the ones that have the initiative, not in spite of our massive force of two aircraft carrier battle groups. No, it, it is certainly the question, you know, it, that is certainly the wild card right now is, you know, what is Iran and its proxy groups going to do? From from a U.S. policy perspective, I think, you know, the most immediate goal and the most immediate objective should be a ceasefire of what's in, in what in uh, Gaza, because as this continues to escalate, as this continues to drag on the risk of escalation, the risk of Iran getting involved, the risk of other proxy groups getting involved only rises. So you know, an immediate stop to the fighting is, is what's needed. Well, John Hoffman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Uh, thank you, Ian. Thank you for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with John Hoffman, who's a policy analyst in defense and foreign policy at the Cato Institute and a professor at George Mason University specializing in Middle East geopolitics and political Islam. He was recently awarded the 40 Under 40 Award from the Middle East Policy Council for his work on U.S. foreign policy in the region, and his work has been featured in Middle East Policy, Open Democracy, The Cipher Brief, and Foreign Policy Magazine, and he has an article at the National Interest, Time to Change Course in the Middle East. We're going to take a brief station break and back and go to Argentina, where a potty mouth populist came in second in Sunday's election. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Argentina is David Adler, the general coordinator of, of the Progressive International, who recently served as a foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders in his campaign for the U.S. presidency. He was policy director of Democracy in Europe Movement 2025 and the co-founder of the Green New Deal for Europe campaign. He's currently part of an international delegation from the Progressive International to Buenos Aires to accompany the electoral process and to strengthen ties with trade unions, social movements and parliamentary representatives on the front line of Argentine's democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Adler. Thanks so much for having me, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here reporting live from Buenos Aires. Well, thank you for joining us. And uh, you dodged a bullet, right? I mean, the expectation was that Javier Millet might well win the potty mouth populist, but he didn't. Uh, the Peronist rival, uh, Massa, won with 36.6%. Uh, Millet came in at 29.9%. 
and the Conservative former Security Minister, Patricia Bullrich, she finished third with 23.8%. So, but it's not over, right? Uh, the next election is in November, and is it possible that Millet and Patricia Bullrich, who's a right-winger, could they join forces? Sure. So I think it's helpful for, for listeners to get a sense of kind of who those three main players are and, and how the Argentine political landscape has been changing in recent years, or in some instances, not changing enough, people might say. So from the left-wing side, we have a candidate uh, that's trying to represent kind of national unity, that represents the great tradition of Peronism, Peronismo in this in this country, which of course is its own kind of political enigma, but broadly stands for national popular democracy with a significant presence of the state in people's lives. So that person represents um, what's called the Unión de la Patria, Unión por la Patria, I should say, and his name is Sergio Massa. And his challenge, Sergio Massa's challenge, is that he's currently the minister of the economy. An economy that is in the toilet, that is suffering through an intense period of inflation, uh, with roughly 50% of Argentines currently living under the poverty line. Uh, so there's a you know a major sense of uh, of not just crisis, uh, but a kind of centrifugal crisis in which things are really getting out of control in terms of the Argentine economy. So that's where a lot of the context becomes important in terms of Sergio Massa's prospects. The other two characters that you mentioned in the outset, one is uh, Patricia Bullrich, who comes from a more traditional conservative right-wing party, but comes from the fringes of that party already. And her slogan coming into these elections was an ordered country. Law, order, crackdown on the, on the, on the sort of emergent, what they would call security crisis or increasing security, talking a lot about street-level policing and putting people in prison. And then you have this very eccentric figure, uh, Javier Millet that you mentioned, a self-styled anarcho-capitalist uh, who you know believes in the legalization of the sale of human organs, uh, among other types of legalization, but wants to basically take a chainsaw to the Argentine state, eliminating ministry, ministry after ministry. So the expectation, as you said, Ian, was that we were coming into this electoral moment in the first round of the presidential elections, in which Millet would do really well, and that there would be a very clear, present threat uh, of a, a Malay victory around the corner. We were very surprised and somewhat relieved yesterday to find that the the pollsters uh, got it really wrong in the lead up to this election. And that Sergio Massa, this figure who comes from the more established, Peronist, traditional left-wing statist party, was able to secure uh, nearly 37%, 7% more than, than Javier Millet in the first round presidential election, uh, which just shows how much resilience there is in in this thing called Peronismo in that in that project, even in the context of so much economic, social, political volatility, they were able to secure that vote. So now we come to your question, which is what happens ahead of the second round? This is the big question that's hanging over everyone's head as we uh, move past the euphoria or disappointment of last night and really focus on the determinative moment, which is coming down the pike on November 19th, uh, which is basically how the vote of Patricia Bullrich and other parts of the political spectrum that were not represented by uh, these two uh, front runners, uh, Javier Milen and Sergio Massa, how that will split. And there we can get into a very interesting conversation about basically what conservative right-wing parties do in highly polarized political contexts in which they're forced to choose between a more establishment social democratic option and a highly radical, uh, 
you know, friendly to the armed forces and, the you know, kind of apologetic for past military dictatorships. When forced to choose between those two options, where does the conservative established right wing go? Well, we've seen that story play out in many different contexts across Latin America and around the world. But that's, I think, the, the question that we need to answer intellectually, politically for ourselves, looking at Argentina's uh, road to the second round of its presidential election. But it seems to me that the most alarming thing about Javier Millet is that he downplayed the role of the military in the disappearance of, of so many Argentine citizens, you know, dissidents, leftists that were tossed off out of airplanes into the Atlantic. I mean, it's the most hideous period in any country's history, particularly one that seemed to be on the surface relatively civilized. But the fact that he viciously attacked the grandmothers, the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, the very group that to this day uh, demand information about their disappeared relatives. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Javier Millet and his and his vice presidential candidate in particular, who's one of the leading figures of this kind of camp of negacionismo, of negationism about what actually happened to the military dictatorship, they promote a theory called the two demons theory, where they say, look, look, we know the military did some bad things. There, the, the famous words they used were, there were excesses. But nothing about our excesses uh, should just be sort of a one-sided portrait of state repression or violence. This was a war. And in wars, sometimes one commits excesses. And in that war, we need to be just as critical about the excesses that in their words and their two demons theory come from the state as though they come from what they consider to be the left-wing terrorists who have terrorized the countries. And uh, I won't curse on the show, but you know, uh, this is someone who thinks that all communists and left-wingers are bleep heads and pieces of bleep. And, you know, he really goes hard on thinking that anyone who advocates any kind of collective approach to social problems is either a terrorist or an idiot or unworthy and should be, you know, uh, chucked chucked out of the country. So there's a very violent, uh, very uh, a, a kind of apologetic approach to the military dictatorship, but a very outrightly violent uh, political vision that Javier Millet has has outlined, even though his supporters try to apologize for that violence by saying, no, he's just a libertarian, right? He's just someone who believes in economic liberties. And if you re- listen to his speeches, he's someone who's talking about liberties and freedoms and recovering the greatness of Argentina in the 19th century. Uh, and, you know, he really admires the great Austrian economists of high neoliberalism. And he wants to get back to these ideas, uh, these old classical ideas of neoliberalism. And in doing so, he wants to, at this point, especially ahead of the second round, kind of obfuscate, hide a bit of the more violent aspects, temptations and components of his coalition. Last night, it was pretty remarkable. Uh, he had quite a sticking point in his speech where he said, I do not come here to get rid of your rights I come here to get rid of their privileges, which is just a lie. It's a nice line, but his whole program is I'm going to eliminate the Ministry of Health. I'm going to eliminate the Ministry of Labor. I'm going to eliminate the Ministry of Education because we don't want public education in this country. We'll give vouchers to all the children and they can choose between their private schools because only markets can resolve Argentina's problems. That's the idea. We need to fully privatize every industry, eliminate all social uh, enterprises and state-owned enterprises. We, of course, stop doing business with China because they're a bunch of communists. The only two countries that he admires are Israel and the United States. And so we're going to change the whole axis of integration away from Latin American neighbors, progressive countries, back towards 
more of these sort of outright pure and puritanical uh, neoliberal countries. It's a very, very radical vision. Now, we've seen moments in history where, to come back to my initial question, proposition or provocation, the conservative traditional right uh, sides with the more radical elements in its coalition. But I'm not convinced that that's what's going to happen here. Um especially in the context of so much inflation, you know, the bet that Millet has on the table is around dollarization. So you've got this real problem of inflation and you know, inflation ends up being a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that once you enter into that kind of cycle, it's very t- difficult to break with those expectations. So what's Millet's idea? He's going to peg again the, the, the Argentine peso to the dollar and we're going to get rid of inflation that way. But this, the, once with that kind of idea and the contestation that will happen over the basic proposal around dollarization, the very next day of a Malay victory, the next day that he moves towards government, the peso is dust. And I think there's a lot of serious Argentine investors, industrialists, capitalists in this country, people who you know, you're, you're wondering where their loyalties would be. Are they towards the national popular Peronist project or towards the more right wing neoliberal one? At the end of the day, they don't want their their those investments to go up in up in flames. You know, they don't want to feel so insecure and, and, and be rushing around finding dollars to stuff into their mattress. So Massa, in that sense, is who's a I think for most people a rather uninspiring, perhaps intentionally uninspiring character, because he's supposed to project this idea of just general, stable, status quo, you know, better politics, more present state. I think that will become really attractive to even parts of the more ant- outrightly anti-Peronist uh, project. Uh, people who really hate former presidents like Nestor Kirchner and his wife and also ex-president Christina Fernandez Kirchner, who are going to want to say, you know, uh, this guy Millet is just too much of a nutcase. Right. But what's hanging over all of this is uh, the IMF austerity, right? What, impoverished almost 50% of the country? Correct. And what what is what does Millet say about the IMF package? He says the IMF package of austerity is tiny compared to the austerity package that I'm planning. Oh, right? that's a winning so this is argument. <laughs> exactly. But but then you but then the, I mean I think it's important to look at the demography uh, of the Millet vote because we're used to hearing that from segments of the population that are broadly unaffected by major cuts to social programs in the welfare state. But the fact is that the project of Millaismo, of you know, Millais at base is a very popular, uh, it's not a very white project uh, as compared to the more kind of, you know, aristocratic conservative right wing. Um, and so there's a way in which he succeeded to uh, sort of inflame the spirits of a really popular uh, in the Latin sense of sort of uh, popular from from poorer neighborhoods uh, a sense of you know oh wow these markets are going to be the way in which we're all going to feel free from the corruption and the communism promoted by our opposition and we're going to get rich and and we're going to live you know in this great colonial fantasy of what 19th century argentina may have been so he sounds a little bit like Elon Musk, right? He's a libertarian, maybe a bit of Peter Thiel, J.D. Vance. How would you peg him in the context of U.S. politics? Yeah, I think that's not a bad uh, co- comparison. I think the funny thing about Millet is is he's crazy, but he's kind of he's he's literate. I mean, he he 
he's there's some kind of it's most of what he says is of course wrong but it's inter, there's a sort of internal coherence this idea and i think it's it's a it's a it's a morbid symptom of where uh, the argentine economy is at that someone who can be so kind of theoretically misguided but very you know is a self-styled economist he calls himself an economist you know his whole idea is i understand the economy better than they do in this sort of heterodox from the right uh type of way but you know it it all kind of i think the best way to understand that is just that inflation creates political monsters i mean when people see their life savings when people see their money their salaries kind of cease to <laughs> generate the, the well-being and the living standards they're used to you know anything can happen in that kind of middle vector and that's why it's surprising was so surprising to see massa perform so well because for sergio massa it's a project that I think, you know, especially this conjuncture, democratic, progressive, social forces should be supporting because it's the only way that we're going to be able to maintain the gains that, you know, uh, have been made in the past 30 years around uh, things like pensions and social programs and public education. We're also trying to build on them. But I won't lie to you. I mean, Sergio Massa does not have a plan for the IMF. There's no, there is no great critical heterodox thinking that is um, prevailing at the highest levels of that campaign in terms of how to get Argentina out of this economic crisis. Now, part of that is because Massa was, is it doesn't come from any more radical wing of the party. I mean, he, he comes from a much more establishment position, much more business friendly. And I don't think he's interested in any kind of major rupture, but certainly we're looking at a horizon which a, a default, partial default, something like this is very possible and very, if not very likely. And then in that context, you know, it's not like we elect Massa in November and Argentina's problems go away, or nor is it the way that we elect Massa in November and the political monsters of his opposition, like Javier Millet, go away. That's totally the wishful thinking that I think we're at risk of in the international community that tends to pay attention just before and after elections and then kind of cease to pay attention. I think that you're totally right to say, you know, we have to pay much more attention to the structural factors that underpin the political crisis above it. Uh, and if we can't address those in a substantial way, and when I say we, I also mean the a burden of, you know, your, your listenership, especially those in the United States, uh, because, you know, it was us, it was, it was our administration that overrode, uh, you know, bylaws at the IMF to give the largest loan in our, the, in, in, in the IMF's history uh, to Argentina, to Mauricio Macri, who basically thrust the country into its worst economic crisis in, in some decades. Um, and it's going to be up to us whether we continue to do things like charge Argentina surcharges to the tune of billions of dollars, which they don't have, uh, because surcharges are supposed to be a kind of punitive measure that encourage countries to pay their debt on time. You know, this absurd punitive idea that still remains dominant at the IMF. Um, you know, there needs to be a lot of work from the U.S. side, not just hand wringing around democracy and and the and the kind of Cold War agenda of democracy versus autocracy, but in actually addressing some of the problems of economic survival, economic dependency, economic development that either enable or disable people like Javier Milev coming to the fore and making a pitch that sounds attractive to to a popular base. Well, as you mentioned, inflation dogging the country and paralyzing it or holding it down. Of course, history indicates that it could be a precursor to fascism as it was with Weimar Germany and Hitler, but they've had flirtations with fascism before in Argentina, along with the military junta, which 
were clearly just the worst kind of fascist brutes. But just in closing, what about can Massa do a campaign on kitchen sink issues then with any kind of uh, realistic hope? As a, Meanwhile, of course, this other character, the potty-mouthed populist, he's on TV rhapsodizing about tantric sex. I'm not sure that that's a kitchen sink issue. Yeah, there, there's this is the major uh, question that needs to be answered. And, and I think that there's a distinction that should be made between um, kind of programmatic campaigns and more corporatist campaigns. So, you know, in some in some countries, in some certain political contexts, it really is about you going to the podium or going to your video campaign or doing your TV spot and making a pitch that speaks to people's personal needs and their desires. That's that's in in some kind of rare cases we have a politics that really hinges on what's in your program and what are you communicating to the public. I think in the Argentine case, it's going to be a lot of power playing, a lot of chess playing about how does the existing uh, coalition. Uh, or whatever distribution of political forces beyond those two parties, Libertad Avanza of Malay and Unión Poda Patria de Fermasa, how do they get the the big the big guns, uh, you know, from all around, both from the kind of more radical left, which they kind of take for granted as being part of the Massa coalition, but the aristocratic right, the pro business right. I mean, they're going to do, and 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 we know this is what's going to happen because we saw the same thing in Brazil. You know, Lula went out and against Bolsonaro, which, by the way, he only won that election by 1.3% in the final count. Lula had to go and carefully craft a coalition that included so many of his formerly declared political enemies from the center right, the so-called central, you know, finding new alliances to build a kind of broad front or popper or unity government. And that's Massa's job now. It's less to necessarily go, you know, he says, I'll go to every corner of the country. There's no time for that. There's 30 days now. All he can do is buy off, um, and not financially, but politically, different forces to basically join this unity government to isolate Millet. Uh, and, and, you know, that, like I said before, is going to, you know, really raise the likelihood uh um, you know, giving away ministries to formal political opponents will raise the likelihood of a victory in November, but it will massively diminish the capacity to govern uh, once uh, once in power. And this is the kind of you know we come we're coming back and uh, time and again to the major problem with Latin American democracy, you might say worldwide, which is it's one thing to win an election. It's very difficult to do, but it's one thing to win an election. It's another thing to win government. And between elections and government, you could get cooed. You could get there could be legal warfare that interrupts that process, like we're seeing in Guatemala. It's very difficult to get government, even when you've won an election. When you win an election, and sorry, when you win government, it's another thing to win power. Then you're talking about legislation, legislative majorities, which of course we won't have and don't have across the across the region. That's really challenging. So how do you go from winning government to winning power? And then it's a fourth thing altogether to win popular power, how to connect deeply with the social movements, civil society organizations, the trade unions who are at the grassroots, who have their ideas, who have their interests and their demands and their priorities, and who need them projected into and taken into and implemented by the state. And I think that where we're seeing uh, is there's always a lot of focus on the uh, moment of elections, that, that point where either the bad guy wins or the better guy wins. 
but we're really need to be looking more at the whole transmission, the whole track that goes from elections to government to power to popular power to, to understand the prospects for, let's say, progressive politics in the region and beyond. Because if we can't even get to power, let alone to popular power, we're going to struggle to contain to put those political monsters back in their box and we could end up back here in four years time. And that kind of eternal return to the border of fascism feels just both boring to me and very scary in the long term. So I'm hoping that we can find a way to to build the right program and the right coalition to really drive that structural change that will be necessary to contain a threat like Javier Millet. Well, David Adler, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with David Adler, who's a general coordinator of the Progressive International, who previously served as a foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders in his campaign for the U.S. presidency and policy director of the Democracy Europe Movement 2025 and co-founder of the Green New Deal in Europe campaign. And he's currently part of the international delegation from the Progressive International to Buenos Aires to accompany the electoral process and to strengthen ties with trade unions, social movements and parliamentary representatives on the front lines of Argentine democracy and he joined us from Argentina. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The